Welcome to the Man Up, Man Down podcast, presented by Volker Baluda and David Pawsey. We discuss the pressures and challenges faced by men approaching middle age that we're often too embarrassed to speak about with our friends. You can find us online at www.manupdown.com. Enjoy the show and don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. Welcome to another episode of Man Up, Man Down. So today we're very pleased to welcome Benjamin May to the podcast. So as a as form of an intro, for the past 21 years, he has been working in the hair industry, spending every day speaking with clients and learning about them, their lives and listening to all their experiences. So if I say like a like a barber, right? I, I went to the barbers this morning. I, you know, you, you can't see the video, but, um, you know, I, I always talk to my barbers. It's like a bit of a therapy session, isn't it? Um, so when, when his friend Jack asked him in 2018 to start a talking group for bereaved adults, he didn't hesitate. Ben's dad had passed away two years earlier and talking was one of the things he knew he could do. So in 2018, they launched the first ever Good Grief meeting. That meeting later became part of the charity they founded, The New Normal. From a North London community centre to a global charity that reaches across many parts of the world, The New Normal now hosts 25-plus meetings a month. His whole working life has been about holding spaces for others, learning how to communicate and seeing the impact of simple, straightforward conversations. Ben, welcome to our podcast. Hey, how are you doing? Yeah, good. We we already, if I say pre-recording, had a had a good laugh. Um, although the topic doesn't really, you know, lead lead itself to to laughing, but maybe it's a way of, if I say, coping. Well, it was mainly um, about Volker's lack of musical knowledge, but we'll oh, we'll, we'll skirt over that. Straight straight in, isn't he? Straight in, awful, <laughs> awful. You know, I I should record the podcast myself. I think. <laughs> uh, swiftly moving on, ignoring that comment. So you were a barber or a hairdresser? I don't know. I mean, being German, what's what's the difference? One does women's hair, the other one does men's hair. I mean, that is the the differentiating point, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, I actually started out. So at the age of sixteen, I left school. Um, I didn't have any qualifications. I had, you know, failed the majority of my exams, and um, after about two months of sort of ambling around in the wilderness of uh, unemployment, my mum suggested to me that I was quite creative. And in this suggesting that I was quite creative, we decided that she thought... The... <laughs> Sorry, for, for the listeners, one of uh, Ben's cats has just uh, popped up in the background. <laughs> yeah. yeah, so my mum my mum suggested that the hair industry might be a place for me. I'd never considered this before, you know, I didn't really think anything of it. My sister, my older sister, 18 months older than me, she was already working in the industry. And I said to my mum, well, you know, if you can get me some interviews, I'm interested in going I suppose you know to kind of placate you and, and make you happy and yeah we she ended up getting me an interview at two salons two different salons the two best salons in the area where I lived and I went and I interviewed for both of those jobs and I, and I got them well I got offered both of them and I, I decided to take one over the other and that was my that was me beginning in the hairdressing industry so I was at that point or I became at that point a color technician so I was a colorist I didn't women's hair I didn't blow dry women's hair but I did color their hair and I was also a men's hairstylist uh, so for the first seven years I worked as a colorist an educator and a men's stylist and then after seven years 
I decided that I wanted to spend more time around men. I enjoyed cutting men's hair. Uh, I enjoyed the conversations I had with my male clients more. And at that point, I decided that I was going to switch over from kind of very high-end, very expensive hairdressing on Brompton Road in Knightsbridge. And I found myself in a barber shop on the Isle of Dogs charging £10 for a haircut and learning how to use a pair of clippers for the first time in my career. Um, and that is when I made the switch from from kind of being able to do more than one thing and working as a hairdresser into actually becoming a barber. What, what, what a story. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, I, I guess like the first sort of point that I want to pick up on there is, um, you know, it sounds like that, you know, you weren't necessarily financially driven. It was kind of the the interaction with with men. Um, but, you know, it, that was more important to you than how much you were earning. Yeah, I mean, I don't think you get into, into that industry if you are looking to earn money. I mean, I work for one of the kind of best-known hairdressing brands in the world. I worked on some of the biggest shows. Uh, I educated for them. I won awards for them. And this was before the age of 22, 23. And I was still earning barely enough money to get by in central London. No, I was way below the minimum. You know, but you did it because it was a passion. You did it because it was something that you loved. Uh, I was never doing that because I wanted to, to, to earn money. When I made that decision to switch over to barbering, you know, again, that wasn't money driven. That was actually, this is the thing that I enjoy the most. So why would I not want to do more of that? And um, I mean, you, you sort of said that it was your mum that pointed out your creativity. Um, mm. Did you feel that you were a creative person? I mean, like you sort of, and I've, I've got a bit of a, a bit of a bugbear with the education system in the you know, it, it does feel like if you're, you know, if you're not academic or you don't tick these boxes, you know, you're stuck in this system for so long. And, yeah. you know, it, it's, I don't, yeah, my attitude is like, well, actually, if someone wants to do coding or painting or whatever, rather than if, if reading, because not, every, you know, I enjoy reading, but not everyone does. I mean, so sorry, I, I like a bit of a ramble with my questions. <laughs> So, I mean, did you did you feel well? What creative things were you doing in school beforehand? And <sighs> I mean, you know, did it? Had you thought that you could do a, a creative career before your mum pointed it out? I mean, my 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 education is really interesting. I think it's a really interesting topic. So, at the age of ten, I was actually expelled from junior school. So that was year six. I picked out of junior school, and I ended up with a police record. Um, and this happened because uh, the teacher that I had at the time, um, she had she had said something in front of the whole of my class. So she was um, she was a deeply religious person, um, and she didn't believe in divorce. Um, my parents at the time were getting divorced, and everybody in the class knew that. My teacher knew that, and she said in front of the whole classroom of people um, that. Children whose parents get divorced get divorced because they don't love the children anymore. This was something that a, a, an adult said to a 10-year-old child. Now, it's important to know here that at 10 years old, 
I had been predicted very good grades moving forward, going throughout my school education. I, at that point, hadn't been diagnosed as dyslexic. You know, years later, I found out that I was severely dyslexic. It turns out, my mum never told me, but it turns out I found out recently that I didn't learn to read and write until I was eight. So despite that, I had shown some level of competence, I guess, in the education system that, that we are put through in this in this country. However, this teacher made this comment when I was 10. As a 10-year-old, you don't really know how to react. Um, the way that I did was I waited for a little while um, and then I actually managed to get hold of that teacher's phone number and I called her home when I knew she wasn't there and in an accent that wasn't my own, I left threats on her answer machine. And bear in mind, 10 years old, I've not really got an idea what I'm doing. I just know that this person has hurt me deeply. And so I want to be able to hurt her as well. And that was the way that I could think to do it. I was caught. Unsurprisingly, I'd done a terrible Scouse accent. Um, <laughs> here, I'm clearly not Scouse. Uh, I was arrested at school. I was taken to the police station. I was kicked out of school at that moment. And I was put in a cell for a couple of hours. And then I was, you know, read my rights. They took an interview with me. I was given a police record. So I'm 10 years old. At this point, I'm told, you have absolutely no hope in life. That's the, that's the first time when I really start to hear this idea that I'm going nowhere. So it means that when I go to secondary school, all of my teachers know exactly who I am from the minute I get there. Your card's been marked. Exactly. So throughout the five years of secondary school, you can see how my performance, my attendance, all of my desire, my work, it just slips further and further and further away from what it could have been potentially had I have had teachers around me who believed in me, who cared about how I might do. I became one of those people who just disappears in the school system. So by the time I get to year 11, I end up with a couple of C's at my GCSEs and that's it. That's all I have to show for, you know, the time that I've, that I've had at school. And so that's why I ended up doing absolutely nothing at the age of 16, because I had absolutely nothing to do. And so my choice became retail or the, the food industry, perhaps, you know, there were lots of pubs and restaurants around where I live. And that's where my mum stepped in and said, you're quite creative. Now, the reason she said that was because I was okay at art. Mm. <laughs> you know, I'd managed to get, <laughs> I'd managed to pass a GCSE in art. So yeah. that was kind of the only thing that it looked like I might be able to do. So no, I had, you know, I had no idea. I had no idea. Like no one had given any hope in what I could or couldn't achieve. Nobody had showed me any sort of belief in what I may or may not be able to do. And there I was with my mum saying that. And I thought, oh, sod it. What else am I going to do? <laughs> um, so no, there was no feeling that I could have done that job or be in a creative industry at all. But when I started, I took to it like a duck to water. Well, and I mean, I guess from what you're saying, I don't know if these people knew about your past, but you know, you were being judged on your merits rather than what they'd heard, or, you know, what, what your reputation was. So I guess, you know, was, well, was that the first time that you did have people saying, 
well done, you're good at this, you're going to go far. Not even in that first job. No, I worked for I worked for a really hard company when I started out. I definitely picked the harder route. So the woman that I worked for, she was really well known. So I worked for a company that had four salons um, around the South Coast. So I'm from Southampton. Uh, so I was working in the Southampton salon. And it was this huge, like, four-story townhouse. And I remember I was at work one day. I was on the top floor and I was doing someone's hair. And... Penny, the woman who I worked for, used to come in and, and say hello to everyone. And everyone would say hello back to Penny. And she got to the top floor and I was like deep in conversation with the person whose hair I was doing. I was aware of her presence, but I didn't want to turn away from my customer because they were telling me something that was obviously important to them, right? So they're telling me something and Penny's here and she walks into the room, stares at me, momentarily and then walks off comes back moments later says ben come here <laughs> i've walked walked out of the room that i'm in onto the landing at the top of this house and she starts screaming at me <laughs> about how there's thousands of other ben mays out there and how she could let me go today and there'd be another one tomorrow and it doesn't matter and to remember who she is and who i am so even in those early days in that industry no and i remember actually when I left there, I moved into another company and they got taken over really quickly. That was the company that I worked for in, in central London, this big, big company. And I remember the owner speaking to me for the first time in there. I was only about 19 years old, I think. And he had come down from London to look at the shop to, to kind of see the staff. And he, he was out the back and I was smoking a cigarette and he looked me up and down and these were the first words he says to me. He looked me up and down. He just went, you look like a builder. <laughs> and to me, that was not offensive. My dad was a builder. I was very proud of looking yeah. at him. I was like, oh, right, okay. Well, yeah, cheers, mate. <laughs> Little did I know that that was a really, really bad thing. You know, I learned that a few weeks later when he told me that looking like that was terrible. Yeah. Um, so, no, I worked for really, really hardline people in that industry. You know, people who were very, very tough to work for, to be around, to communicate with. So you weren't praised, you know, right. even when you achieved something, when you did something great, when I, I, you know, I won one of the biggest awards as a young color technician in, in the UK, it wasn't well done. It was right. What's next. Yeah. You know, and it, it really kind of drove the narrative of how I treated myself at work for the next 10, 15 years. So, so obviously that's if I say that's the story how you got into in, into hair. Say, is, do you say hairdressing, bar barbering? I, I I never know which word yeah. to use. I would say the hair industry. Hair industry. Okay. So, if I say how how did you get out of it? If I say and and, and found the charity because obviously you enjoyed speaking to your to your clients, right? And there, there was Jack who who you met. So how how does that all then then come along? It's important to remember that I still cut hair three days a week at this point. So the, the okay. So, so even though the charity is growing, I still only do that part-time. So I still get the opportunity to actually do the thing that I really enjoy doing. But the transition into creating the charity, it was, it was, it was simple. You know, Jack, Jack and I met in, in just a completely serendipitous moment. I was at work and this young kid walked in and he sat in my chair and I started cutting his hair. And he had found me somehow through the Instagram algorithm and thought, oh, he looks quite cool. I'm going to go and get a haircut with him, 
Why? You know, that they're his words, they're not my words. Just yeah. Um, you know, and he had travelled. He had travelled across uh, from from Brentwood in Essex all the way to Portobello Road in 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 West London, where I where I wow. time. Yeah, so he made a, a real journey, a real effort to come and get this haircut. And he sat in my chair, and we started talking, and immediately we just hit it off. You know, we had come from the same kind of backgrounds. We were both very working class. We were both brought up on football terraces by similar sounding men, listening to the same kind of music. We dress the same way. You know, there was a lot of commonality in who we were and and how we were speaking and our experiences. And then about 20 minutes into the appointment, Jack said to me that his dad had passed away two years before. And this was the serendipitous moment because my dad, Steve, had just been diagnosed a week earlier with a terminal brain tumour. So that space that we immediately created for one another was the very foundation of the charity. We obviously had no idea at that point. It took us another two years before we before we launched. But at that point, that openness and that vulnerability that we showed one another was the very center of what we do now and over the weeks and months and year that that sort of passed as my dad got progressively more unwell and he sadly passed away in August 2016 Jack and I spent more time together we went and watched football together drank beer together went for dinner together you know went to gigs together and the whole time we were talking about our dad's and not just our dads, we were talking about other things as well. You know, Jack's a few years younger than me, as he always reminds me. And, um, <laughs> well, you know, probably a good good point to mention I mean, that I'm younger than Volker. But, yeah, um, always yeah he, he would say that. I know he doesn't look it, but yeah, that's why he's saying it. <laughs> um, actually, but with you both living at the other end of, of London, right? Did, mm-hmm. did you meet in the middle or did... Did Jack come over for a haircut every week? Or? Yeah, so he maybe a stupid question, but I'm, I'm just... No, not at all. Not at all. <laughs> I, I also, at the same time, by 2016, so the I, I opened a second business in the city. Uh, so I had the, the shop on Portobello Road, um, winding up the business, and I opened the other business in the city. So actually, Jack used to come into Liverpool Street from Brentwood. It was a really easy train in. And so I would meet him, I would meet him there because I cut hair around, around the city. So I was always able to like, to, you know, we were able to make it work and we were, we were younger. I was definitely, (laughs) (laughs) you know, know, and Jack as well was, was working for Sky Sports. So he was in town quite a bit anyway. So, you know, we were able to kind of meet in town. So it wasn't too, it wasn't too arduous a task. And also as well, when you find that friendship with a person, like you want to spend time around them. You know, Jack and I weren't just friends because we loved football. We weren't just friends because we loved music. We weren't just friends because we dressed the same. You know, we were friends because we had all of those things and this other thing, this other really precious space that we didn't find in anyone else. When my dad was sick, when my dad died, I didn't feel that I had the right to go into my family and to use that space to grieve. I felt that I should leave that for my other family members, for my sister, for my stepmom, for my brother. I wanted my space away from that to be able to, you know, to grieve my dad. 
but to also grieve my dad in a way that honoured him, that spoke about the stories that I enjoyed, where I could share that and somebody wouldn't just switch down or shut off or stop listening. And in Jack, I had that because in me, Jack had it, right? So we fostered that environment together. So the travelling was never an issue. The finding time for one another was never an issue. It was always available. How old was Jack when his father died? And Jack was how 20- old were you? Yeah, so Jack Jack was 22 when his dad passed away, um, and I was 30. Right, and um, I mean, you mentioned that your parents divorced. So, so what? Um, I mean, before your well, what what was sort of was the relationship with your dad as a result of that? My dad was my best friend. Like my dad and I were so close. We spoke three times a week on the phone. Um, you know, and those conversations were not deep. <laughs> My dad was not a deep man. You know, we, you know, we didn't have that kind of a relationship, but we spoke. We wanted to connect. We wanted to chat. We wanted to talk about the football. We wanted to talk about what our weeks were like. My dad was a businessman when I was a kid. He had a, he had a small building firm. And when I opened my first business, my dad always wanted to talk to me about that. He always wanted to find out what was going on and how I was doing. Did I need advice? And look, I asked him for advice. I never took any. His advice was terrible. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, I was always really, really happy to have those conversations with him and listen to him and, and, and you know, find out about his experiences as well. So my dad was my best friend and Jack had exactly the same experience with his dad. His dad was his best friend. Jack tells me these beautiful stories about his dad driving him all the way from Essex to Portsmouth on a Sunday night, you know, to drive him back to university just so that he could spend time with him. Like that, I mean, you know, that's a hell of a long journey to to sit, to make sure that you can spend as much time as possible with your kid. You know, I think that's a, a real testament to the relationship that they had. You started sort of, building this strong bond you know and as, as I'm saying this you know I, I, I'm gonna have to say it obviously me and Volker have been bickering a bit on this episode but you know it, it almost sounds like our relationship and how this podcast came together because we started yeah. working on a work project and I mean we just started sort of talking about post-pandemic and but you know like we got kids similar ages we've both got dogs <laughs> that are a pain in the ass um <laughs> and yeah you know and it was just like it's like well we can't be the only people going through this mm-hmm. so and you know it's like and we talk about this a lot we should just be recording these conversations so how so how did you kind of go from yeah from sort of just talking to building a a brotherhood, I guess, between the two of you. How did that go from that to creating this charity? So in, I think it was February 2018, Jack uh, and his mum, Gloria Baxter, wonderful woman, uh, went away on an anxiety retreat for the weekend together. Um, His mum wanted to take him there because he'd gone through another difficult breakup. Uh, He was showing significant signs of anxiety. You know, he was really struggling in certain parts of his life. And when they came back, 
Jack and I went for dinner and he sat down and he said, hey, he said, mate, he said, whilst I was away, he said, the, 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 the people, the counsellors that I was speaking to at this retreat, they, they said to me, you know, about the conversations that we have, I was telling them about them. He said, and they said, you know, would I ever consider having those conversations with anyone else? I was like, right, okay, yeah. And he said, um, he said, what do you think? Would, would you be interested? Do you want to see if there's anyone else out there like us who might want to just talk about their dead people? I thought, well, this is obviously something that my my friend needs, right? This is obviously something that he would like. So I'm, I'm totally open to that. Um, I personally have been in group therapy before. So I had been in peer-to-peer support. I knew what that looked like. I understood that kind of that space. And he said, why don't we go to the hospices where our dads died? And I said, nah, I said, that's, I said, I don't want to do that. I said, look, why don't we just do something in, in London? Why don't we just post on our social media? Why don't we find the space? We'll just invite whoever wants to come to come. We'll just say, we're going to talk about grief. We're going to talk about our dads. And he said, yeah, all right. Yeah, sod it. We'll do it. And that was in the February. By the May, we had found a venue in Angel in North London in a community centre that a friend of mine was running at the time, the Art Community Centre it's called. And we had posted a number of times on our own personal social medias about this saying, this is what we're going to do. This is where we're going to be. You know, if you'd like to come, please come. There's no fee. It's free to join. We're just going to talk. We're, we're just going to sit around and talk. And we had loads of people get in touch. Loads of people get in touch. I mean, countless numbers of people tell us that they were... And sorry, when was this? This was May 2018. Right, May 2018. Loads of people. I'm coming. I'm definitely coming. This is amazing. This is exactly what I need. Were you promoting it to men or was it just a a place to talk? It was just an open space to anyone. Yeah. And on the 21st of May... At 7 p.m. in the Ark Centre in Angel, we stood there, both shitting it, <laughs> just hoping that one other person would turn up. And by five past seven, five other people had walked into that room and the seven of us sat down around the table. We had cups of tea, we had biscuits, and for two hours we sat there and we all spoke about the people that we had lost. And it was a... Uh, really open and honest and frank discussion. It wasn't about telling people what to do or what to think or how to feel. It was about sharing our experiences and through sharing our experiences, finding commonality and through that commonality, realizing that the loneliness that you feel in grief and trauma, you realize you're not the only person. And it's interesting when you said about the two of you connecting, I know that Bo told you when he was on this podcast recently about what we say, you know, and it came one day we were recording, Jack and I were recording a podcast a few years ago, and I just said, if there's one, there's two. Simply what that means is you're not the only person experiencing what you're experiencing. There are thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who would understand how you feel our work at the charity is about connecting those two people together. Those people who can sit and say, I empathize with you. I hear what you're saying and I empathize with you. 
because this is my experience and my experience is similar to yours. And that, that is the key there is supporting loneliness. Like ultimately that's what we do. Support loneliness, create community. Man Up Man Down is sponsored by Welldoing. As someone who has seen a counsellor for a number of years, I think their approach is great. They want you to find the mental health professional who is right for you. You can filter your search to highlight therapists with expertise where you need it, or you can pay to use their personalised matching service. The people who run Welldoing are experts in mental well-being, and they also have loads of posts and interviews to keep your mental health in good shape. Take a look at welldoing.org. So, I mean, you, you sort of say loneliness. I mean, are these generally people that, that live on their own or is it sort of, you know, that loneliness of experiencing something that no one else in their immediate circle has experienced? So when I moved to, when I moved to central London, I, and I, when I, when I tell this, I know that every other person will have a moment in their life that feels relatable to, to this. When I moved to central London, I lived with two friends. The first weekend I moved here, I met loads of people because we had a house party. My two friends already lived here and they invited a load of people. So I made all these new friends immediately. About two weeks in, I came home. It's like a cold Thursday evening. Central London, huge, scary, big place, right? And I get home and neither of my housemates is there. None of my new friends I had made were friendly enough for me to just call or go and hang out with at that point. And I remember I called my mum and she didn't answer. And then I called my dad and he didn't answer either. This happened 15 years ago. And yet I can still remember the feeling of loneliness and I, as I sat in that bedroom in that house. I remember how lonely I felt, knowing that there were all those people in the world who loved me and cared about me and I had all these new friends, and yet there was absolutely no one there for me at that very moment. That sense of loneliness is a horrible, horrible feeling. It's incredibly isolating. And often we tend to find it when we're going through trauma, when we're going through something big in our lives, when we're going through a change, because it's a sense of there is absolutely no one here who understands me or is here to support me. Now, that isn't the case, because there are always generally people around you who will support you and do care about you and want to help you. But that doesn't stop you feeling that. And so when we talk about that sense of loneliness, that's the sense of loneliness that we mean. It's not people living in isolation or people living on their own or people who don't you know, feel that they have friends or, or, or a support network around them. Although those people are there and they are very welcome, they do come into our spaces. But it's also about the people who do have that support around them and still feel that sense of loneliness. And in bereavement, in grief, often that is a significantly overwhelming feeling where we feel that we are the only person who understands what we're going through in that moment. You talk about grief and bereavement. I mean, that sort of one, I guess one of the, the interesting things that I've learned through, you know, my mental health journey is that, um, you know, that doesn't necessarily have to be someone dying mm -hmm. that, you know, it can be, well, and also, you know, with the term trauma, 
it's you know it doesn't have to be you know trauma is it's not well so if i talk about trauma it's not what i think is trauma if it's you know if it's your from your perspective if it's traumatic to you it's traumatic to you but yeah basically well so i guess what i'm asking is you know do, is it just people that have lost loved ones that come come to your charity or is it sort of more diverse so just to pick up on trauma trauma is happening to us all of the time just as a consequence of existing yeah <laughs> there is always something happening to us that is traumatic always like that's just that's sadly a fact we experience it in our everyday everywhere we go and we collect these little pieces of trauma and sometimes these really really big things happen to us a significant bereavement a relationship breakup a, you know you lose your job maybe you move house and actually that's incredibly traumatic a whole new routine having to start again these are all feelings of grief as well these are all feelings of loss losing a job a relationship coming to an end uh, a friendship coming to an end you know all of these different things have a, a, a same feeling a same sense of, of grief and trauma but in our spaces we have different groups for all kinds of communities so we have our spaces for grief where we have our original good grief meeting then we have a place for people of color we have a place for the LGBTQ plus community, uh, you know, for, for young carers, for partner loss, for students, you know, all of these different spaces that are available. And then we also have spaces for mental health. So we have uh, Grey Matters, which is a group for over 40 year olds to speak about their mental health and well-being. I mentioned that because I, I named that meeting and I really like it. <laughs> um, I want to start Silver Linings for 60 plus. Right. <laughs> yep. I know, you know, as a copywriter, I know that it's all about the, uh, you know, the, the, the branding and the naming. Yeah, it really is, yeah. I wonder where all these names are coming from, giving you a colorist, but... <laughs> colorist. <laughs> I really, really liked that colour. And then we have Boys Talk and Girls Talk, which are groups specifically for people who identify as men or women. You know, so we have spaces for uh, for mental health, for well-being. We also launched uh, Run Club and Ride Club. So it's for people who run or people who cycle, ride bikes. Uh, it's accessible to all people. Uh, we're launching groups all around the UK where people can just come along and be in a space where they can exercise you know, they don't have to run fast. They don't have to ride fast. It's not about exclusivity. It's not about ability. It's just about being around a community of people who are like-minded like you and might want to have a conversation with you about how you're feeling or about how they're feeling. So we have lots of different spaces. We also as well have kind of changed the model of the charity. So although we still continue to create our own groups and, you know, in the UK, for example, I think we have about 13 different groups That'll be the same in in North America or across the Americas where we're launching in May. It's the same in Hong Kong where we launched 14 months ago. You know, it's the same in France where we're launching this month. So although we will have all of those groups, what we're focusing on is being able to teach people to hold space for their community. So the the, the thing that I've been bleating on at people about for the last three or four months is, you know, teach a person to fish, teach a person to fish over and over and over again. Yeah. 
So it's all well and good us constantly creating communities ourselves. But if we can teach people how to support their own communities through facilitation training, through mental health first aid training, through suicide awareness training, safeguard training, you know, all of these different things, then we know that we can give you those tools and then make sure that you're supporting whatever community it is for you. So say, for example, if you two decide that you wanted to start a community to support, you know, men who set up their own podcasts, um, (laughs) you know, um, but you want to you want to make sure that you're doing that safely, that you're doing that responsibly. We can teach you how to do that through training. So, you know, it's how do we as a charity make sure that we keep getting free mental health support, free mental health resources to as many people globally as possible? Well, we have to look at how we can give those people the tools themselves to be able to actually practice it. So it's my, my turn. I, I never get a word in here anymore. It's like, <laughs> he's worse than my wife's these days. <laughs> so how, how do I have to envisage that? I mean, how do we facilitate that? So you mentioned the, the first few meetings where, you know, in, in a community center, do you have like 13 groups in one community center and then different rooms or do you do it all online or, I mean, how, so, how, how does it work? It, it might be a stupid question, but you know, for, no, no. for you know, if, if you're a listener now, you kind of think, or I, I'd love to have a group, you know, I might have not lost someone, but I, I, I want to find a like-minded group. Maybe we set one up for a middle-aged man. Um, you know, it's like, how, how do we do that? How, how, how is it practical? Do I have to be so, in London? No, not at all, not at all. So we can do all of our education online. So actually, we're about to go into working with our first group of people who are going to become facilitators. I think we've got around about 30 or 40 people signed up. You know, we started this like a couple of months ago changing what we're doing we've already got this huge vast amount of people already signed up to it which is incredibly daunting in a bit but um but no so you can do all of your training online you can be anywhere in the world it doesn't matter where you are as long as you go through all of our checks you have to you have to uh, for example have a dbs check um, if you're in the uk or the equivalent if you're in another country um, and then you can host your meetings however you want so my at the moment, a significant amount of our meetings are online. So, you know, you, you can go onto our website, you can see there where our meetings are, when they're being held, at what time. So you can kind of, you can just log on from your bedroom, you can log on from your front room, your kitchen, or wherever you are in the world. We do have some in-person meetings, but kind of my my vision, my vision, it's not my vision, it's our it's our collective vision but my hope my 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 want for the future is that you know we can create spaces everywhere so wherever you are in the world you can go online you can filter out all of the meetings that aren't relevant to you and then you'll be able to access meetings in whatever language you speak either in person or online at any time of the day you know, to be able to give that level of, 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 of kind of space and support to people is, is where we're trying to go with this. But for the moment, most of our stuff is online. And at the moment, it's in English. It launches in French next week. It will be in Cantonese as well in the next couple of months. And we'll be launching Spanish-speaking meetings as well this year. Uh, I'm off to California in May. And we, you know, it's before our fifth birthday that I'm off to California to launch in, in, in America. And I'm like, this is crazy. Like, this is crazy. You know, how, how on earth have we gotten here? It feels wild, but it's so exciting. 
I mean, I'm, I'm going to be a bit of a, well, put a negative slant on it. I mean, one of my, you know, I've sort of talked about, you know, my, my issues with the education system. Yeah. I mean, the thing that that really grinds my grapes is, you know, the lack. Well, there's so much talk about, oh, you know, we're going to put extra funding from the government. We're going to put extra funding into to mental health. Yeah. And for a start, I'm like, well, you've got a long way to go to get back to the level it was before you started making austerity cuts. Um, yeah. I mean, you know, and and what I think you do is amazing. And obviously, you know, we, we're talking, we talk with quite a few organisations that do this either in the workplace. You know, it, should the government be doing more? Or, you know, is this the best way forward? I mean, it, you know, in, in some ways it's, yeah, you know, I think it is is incredible. Mm-hmm. But, you know, there's, it, it's almost necessitated by the complete lack of funding in, a, in in mental health services, particularly in the UK. I mean, I don't know what it's like in America, you know, in, in I mean, obviously they have a, are well aware that their health system's completely different. But, um, I, I mean, you know, should the government be doing more? Or, you know, is it down to charities and private enterprises to support each other? So, in my opinion, yes, the government should be doing more. The government should be working with organisations who are uh, diversifying the way that we behave and the way that we treat mental health and mental ill health. I think that for a significant amount of time, the charity sector has been uh, swamped by large charities who hoover up a significant amount of money whilst in return giving very little support. Um, It wouldn't take much for people to actually go and Google to find out exactly what big charities are paying, CEOs are paying, you know, people who sit on their boards. It's it's embarrassing. Um, You know, they're raising money to pay salaries. That shouldn't be the case. What should be happening is that the government should be having conversations with, you know, new emerging charities to work out how to best support communities. Um, And also as well, when we talk about you know, funding for the NHS. What the NHS is 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 funded significantly. The issue around the NHS is the huge amounts of mismanagement um, and the poor spending of the funding that is brought in. Um, if we can change the way that the NHS is actually dealt with, is it run, managed, however you want to look at yeah. it, then you can change the fortunes of 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 you know the people who live in this country with the seventy million people who use the NHS. Um, it's that should be the focus. How do we actually change the way that the money is being used, the money is being spent? How do we change the way the government is funding places? Um, because, you know, we've got a model here which costs very, very little to run. You know, it takes a lot of time. It takes a lot of, you know, our time to be able to train people, but we can train a significant amount of people to support one another. And it's a focus as well on changing not just the way that we react to trauma, but the way that we're thinking about trauma before it, you know, before we understand the real implications of what has happened to us. So talking about things from an early age, exploring how we feel from an early age, and starting to understand exactly how we can deal with what is going on with us, what's happened to us, um, much, much sooner than when the manifestation happens our lives seem to fall apart, another relationship break up, you know, another bad job goes wrong, whatever it is. Um, so prevention, 
rather than postvention is what we need to focus on. Right, well, I'm going to ask one more question and then uh, I'm going to let Volker <laughs> jump in and do the roundup. Sorry, sorry for for always jumping in, Volker. Um, yeah, you're yeah, very dominating, yeah. Well, you know. Um, what? So what were the gigs that you and Jack went to see and uh, what football matches? <laughs> what, who's your team? Uh, so I'm a Southampton fan, sadly. Right. Uh, which is, uh, it's been a significantly more painful year than I would like so far. Jack is a Tottenham fan, so I think you would probably share that sentiment with right. me. Right. <laughs> um, neither of us particularly enjoy watching football. But um, yeah, so so sadly, we've, we've both been played with that. And actually, we're both, uh, we both like alternative music, as you know from picking up on the Lou Reed poster behind me. Um, I think the most notable gig or show that I can think of that Jack and I went to was the Cribs 20th right. anniversary of Man's Needs, Woman's Needs, yeah. um, which we went to see in Kentish Town at Kentish Town Forum. Um, and this was after I'd stopped drinking, so I stood there completely sober watching a band that I had loved 20 years before, thinking, do I still love this band? <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm off the booze at the moment, but... Um... Yeah. yeah, no, I, and I have to say, going to gigs is sort of one of my favourite like pastimes in terms yeah. of you can go out with your mates who are drinking yeah but it's not based completely around drinking yeah yeah but, uh, yeah anyway we're uh we're we are running out of time mainly because of my interruptions and ramblings so i'm going to pass over to volker what, what, what should i say i'm if i say i'm listening with all and i mean obviously when we when when, when we touched base before before the recording as well i think it's 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 amazing it's just you know, it's just absolutely amazing what you guys guys are doing. And uh, yeah, I mean, f- first of all, you know, we've got to put it in the show notes as well. Like, where, where can where can people get involved, right? You know, where can people find out more? Because it's it's such a it's a movement, right? It's not even you know, it's, it's not yeah. at least in my view, right? It's not something we go like, oh, that, there's a group in London you can talk about grieving. No, I think I think you're bigger than that now, right? You're you're the new normal, right? You're 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 you know, you, you get people together to talk and to talk about the topics that are important to, to them and it becomes more and more important. It's one of the reasons, yeah, D- David and I, you know, when, when we met, <laughs> you know, d- decided, you know, let's, 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 let's talk about things middle-aged men, you know, normally don't talk about and, and grievance yeah. is one of them. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other topics, I mean, obviously you just have to go through, through a list on the podcast, but so yeah, where can, where can people find out more? How can, how can we get involved? So so you can either head to the newnormalcharity.com, which is our website, and you can find out more about us and how we founded and, and why we founded and read some of the testimonials and stories of people who use our spaces. Or head over to our Instagram at TNN Charity, which is our main page, and, and, and get in touch through there. So... Either of those two ways is probably the the, the, the best way to do it. But yeah. yeah. And where do we come for a haircut? Because I, I do need a haircut. Volker said he's just come back from his barbers. But if I want a haircut, where do I come? So to get a haircut, I'm in Broadgate Circle in the city. So I'm just behind Liverpool Street Station. The best way to get a haircut from me is to go onto my Instagram profile, which you can find via the charity Instagram. And, uh, and the link is in my bio to book a haircut. <laughs> yeah perfect thanks thanks for that shameless plug i appreciate <laughs> it 
<laughs> well, no, yeah, as I, I say, mean, it's it, more my narcissism of, you know, yeah, what, what's yeah. going on up here. So. So, so, so the problem is probably even Ben can't help you with that. So, <laughs> <laughs> But at least we can talk about it. So, yeah, exactly. you know, I, I can talk about the trauma of my terrible haircut. Exactly. <laughs> ben, it was an absolute pleasure to have you on the podcast. Um, yeah, there's, there's not much more to add from my end. It, it's, it's just, yeah, as I say, I, I, I take the same away as, you know, I did, you know, when we first spoke. It's just, it's just amazing. It's just great. So thank you for doing that. Look, I really appreciate the opportunity to tell your listeners about the work that we're doing. And, you know, hopefully um, at least one person listening to this will be able to benefit from it. Um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm really grateful to you guys for, for kind of holding this space for myself and for other people as well. So thank you for your work. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for listening to this week's episode. Feel free to reach out to Volker or David via our website, www.manupdown.com or podcast at manupdown.com with any feedback or to let us know what topics you'd like us to cover in the future. Hear you again soon.